It was a cold December night and I was just a kid. The stack of firewood was nearing the bottom and my grandmother knew it wouldn't last till morning. She asked my uncle to fetch some more from the mountains. My uncle took me with him and we drove off in his pickup truck. He chopped the wood and I stacked it as fast as I could. By the time we finished, the sun was setting and the bed of the pickup truck was half full. On the way home, the sun disappeared from the sky and it grew very dark. We were driving down a dirt road that led through the woods. I leaned my head against the window and watched the silhouettes of the trees race past as the stars twinkled above them. All of a sudden, I got the awful feeling that we were being watched. The hair on the back of my neck stood up and a chill ran down my spine. My uncle had a strange look on his face and he was staring directly ahead. Just then, I heard a tap on the window behind me. I started to turn around, but my uncle suddenly shouted, Don't! I completely froze. My heart started beating rapidly. My uncle put his foot down on the accelerator and we began to speed up. It was the first time I had ever seen real fear on my uncle's face. I heard another tap on the window beside me. Look at me, my uncle shouted. Don't turn around, keep looking at me. I didn't know what was going on. My mind was racing. All of a sudden, I felt the truck dip as if something heavy had landed in the back. My uncle sped up even more and started praying loudly in our native language. I wanted to cry. I wanted it to stop. Once again, I heard a tap on the window behind me. Just keep looking at me and don't turn away, my uncle cried over and over. I could see he was on the verge of tears. He was driving faster and faster, pushing the engine to its limits. My heart was beating so rapidly I thought it would leap out of my chest. It was getting harder for me to breathe. I shut my eyes as tight as I could and whispered a prayer. A minute or two passed and then the truck dipped again. My uncle looked around and let out a deep sigh of relief. He slowed down and everything was quiet again. All I could hear was the drone of the truck's engine and the crunch of the gravel on the dirt road. My uncle looked at me and said, We will have your father do a prayer in the morning so the evil will forget our faces. I remember curling up on the seat and just staring at the clock on the dashboard as I listened to my uncle sing an old prayer. By the time we got back to my grandmother's house, I was almost asleep. My uncle carried me inside and put me to bed. To this day, my uncle has never talked about what happened that night. When my mother was young, she went out on a blind date. Her date took her to a restaurant, and although he was nice enough, she just wasn't into him. Halfway through the meal, she was so bored that she was already thinking of excuses so that she could leave early. The waiter could tell she was bored and kept smiling and winking at her. While my mom's date was in the restroom, the waiter approached her and started asking her if she was okay. She explained that she was on a blind date, but she wasn't having much fun. 
It turned out that the waiter was just about to get off work. He offered to give my mother a ride home if she waited another 10 minutes. She considered it and was tempted to say yes, but just then her date came back from the restroom. She shook her head, smiled at the waiter and told him, no thanks. My mom and her date finished their meals and he drove her home. The next night, my mom happened to be watching the evening news. There was a news flash saying that a woman had been found murdered behind a restaurant the night before. She realized it was the same restaurant she had been at with her date. Then they said that the police had already caught the killer. A picture flashed up on the screen. It was the waiter. There was a woman named Jackie who lived in a rented bungalow house with her two-year-old son Jamie and her baby daughter Samantha. About a month after she moved in, she began hearing strange noises. It sounded as if they were coming from the attic. She tried to ignore them, but every time she heard the unexplained noises, it sent a chill down her spine. Jackie hired a 16-year-old girl named Tina to babysit her children. One day, when they were in the kitchen, they noticed weird glowing lights floating around near the trap door in the ceiling. Jackie grabbed her camera and told the babysitter to take some pictures. As soon as Tina looked through the camera lens, she saw something that terrified her. She screamed in horror and dropped the camera and both of them ran out of the house in fear for their lives. The babysitter said what she had seen was the ghostly image of an old man with a face that looked like a skeleton. One day she went shopping. When she came home, she walked into the kitchen and found something creepy on the refrigerator. The magnetic letters of the alphabet on the fridge door had been rearranged to read, Get the hell out. It unnerved her so much that she couldn't sleep and she spent the night awake, watching over her children. In the middle of the night, she heard what sounded like loud breathing. She went down the hallway looking for the source of the noise. When she opened the door to the spare bedroom, she recoiled in horror. What she saw was an old man sitting on her son's bed. Jackie was so terrified that she grabbed her kids and ran out of the house. She couldn't afford to move out of the house and she was worried that if she told anyone what was going on, they would think she was out of her mind. The next day, she was in the kitchen, washing the dishes, and she noticed that her rubber gloves were covered in blood. She pulled off the gloves, but there were no cuts on her hands. Then, she looked around and saw blood pouring down the kitchen walls. That night, Jackie woke up in the middle of the night and felt someone holding her down. She couldn't get up and... She couldn't breathe. She thought she was going to die. Suddenly, it let her go. She grabbed her kids and ran out of the house. That was the last straw. She couldn't take it anymore. She called in a team of paranormal investigators and asked them to find out what was going on in her house. The next evening, the investigators arrived with their equipment. They set up cameras all over the house and Jackie told them all of the supernatural events she had experienced. All of a sudden, the lights went out. 
They suspected that whoever or whatever was haunting the house. It was angry that the investigators were there. When the lights came back on, one of the investigators decided to go up into the attic and take some pictures. He climbed up through the trap door and the rest of the team waited for him to come back down. All of a sudden, they heard a scream coming from the attic. The investigator fell through the trap door and claimed that something had grabbed his camera. Just then, they heard the sound of someone walking around in the attic, even though there was nobody up there. The investigators recovered their camera and left. Two other investigators decided to go into the attic with a flashlight and another camera. The rest of the team waited in the kitchen. All of a sudden, they heard a loud snap, and the investigators in the attic started yelling and screaming. When they came back down, one of them was choking and gasping for air, and he had red marks around his throat. They said something had attacked them in the attic. When they looked at the pictures on the camera, they were horrified by what they found. In one picture, one of the investigators had an old rope around his neck, like a noose, and he looked like he was being choked. Jackie and the team of investigators ran out of the house screaming. After that, Jackie refused to spend another night in the house. She gathered her children and moved out. Since then, the house has been rented to other people, but none of them stay very long. To this day, everyone involved in the case is still haunted by what happened in the attic. The scariest thing about this story is that it is true. It happened in San Pedro, California in 1989 and the woman's name was Jackie Hernandez. When I was in high school, I was a really naive, sheltered teenager. We lived in a really close community where there was never any crime. It was a married couple who moved in at the end of our block. They had two boys, one was the same age as me and the other was two years older. There's no nice way to put this, but the boy who was my age was really ugly. He looked kind of like Sloth from the Goonies. However, his older brother was a really cute guy. I mean, he looked like a model. I sat next to Sloth, the younger brother, in a few of my classes at school. I also worked on some projects with him. One day when I was sitting beside him in class, I started to make idle chit chat with him. He looked straight into my eyes and said, You better watch out. My older brother likes you and the last girl he liked is the reason we had to move. I was so shocked. I didn't know what to say. He said it made it sound so grave and serious. That was all he said to me. A few weeks later, my parents went out shopping and I was left home alone. It was nighttime and all of a sudden I heard the doorbell ring. When I answered the door, there was no one there. Then I noticed a small envelope with my name on it sitting on the doormat. When I opened it, well, the contents were disturbing, to say the least. It was a long poem about me being attacked by a man in a cave who sneaked up on me. 
knocked me out with chloroform, then tied me up and brought me back to his basement where he did unspeakable things to me. I thought it must be one of my friends pulling a prank on me. I called my friend on the phone and told her, You got me. The poem was super creepy and really freaked me out. She had no idea what I was talking about. All of a sudden, while I was on the phone with her, I heard something banging against the back door of the house. It was soft at first, but it got louder and louder and kept going on and on. Then, the banging suddenly stopped and everything was silent. I was still convinced it must be one of my friends playing a trick, so I peeked out the kitchen window. I couldn't see anyone. I was still on the phone with my friend and she was yelling at me to call the police. Just then, the doorbell rang again. I creeped down the hall, pressed myself up to the door, and peeked out the peephole. No one was there, but I could make out a large black lump on the front porch. I couldn't see what it was, so I flicked the switch for the porch light, but it didn't come on. At this point, I was so scared I was about to have a heart attack. My friend convinced me to hang up and call the police. A few minutes later, a squad car came by and I looked out of the window. Across the street, under a street lamp, I could see the older brother, the cut guy. He was just standing there, smoking a cigarette and watching my house. The police went up and questioned him. Then I saw they tried to search him, but he started fighting and they had to tackle him to the ground. Eventually, they managed to put the handcuffs on him. When they searched him, they found a lot of things. The light bulb from my porch light, a jar of chloroform, a length of rope and a bloody knife. It was bloody because the black lump on my porch was next door's cat. He had killed it and carved my name into it. The older brother was a really cute guy, but he was mentally disturbed. He was really crazy and his parents didn't care. The younger brother had tried to warn me. I felt bad about calling him Sloth. He turned out to be one of the smartest and nicest guys in my high school. I think he gave me such a cryptic warning because he was afraid of his older brother. He was scared that his brother would find out and maybe hurt him. This next story is narrated by Paula Perez. She's an actress that my casting director Jason Combs hired for me. She's going to be narrating some episodes on this channel here on out. So send her some good feedback, and I hope that you enjoy the show. And enjoy her presence, please. <laughs> the brain is a tricky thing. We have a map for it, but it only covers the physical side. And even then, it varies greatly from person to person. Every little thing we experience affects our brain in different ways. Every hug you get, every argument you have, even every pornographic film you watch will contribute to the physical shape of your brain. And as a result, no two brains are the same. Then of course, there's the less tangible side, the mind. While the structure of your brain greatly affects the way you think, we have very little understanding of the ways that neurology and psychology intersect. As a hypnotist, I've had the pleasure of learning things about a human mind that most people could never begin to understand. 
It isn't like television or the movies, where a man waves his hand around or uses some spinning device to control someone against their will. Instead, it's a lot more like therapy. We bring the patient into a state of hypnosis after long discussions about what's going wrong in their lives and what they would like to change. That is the most important thing about this process. The person really needs to want that change. I dim the lights, talk them through the process to help them get into a deeper subconscious state, and use simple persuasion to convince the subconscious to reprioritize itself. Until today, I believed that I was only changing one part of a patient, the part they wanted to see improvement on. But I now realize that when you hypnotize someone in an attempt to help them, the changes can run a lot deeper than we expected. One change affects everything else in their mind in ways that we can't see. On the first Sunday of every month, I would generally see a young patient of mine named Christopher. I say generally because it wasn't uncommon for him to miss his appointments. I didn't mind it so much, I had plenty of openings in the rest of the week after all. And Christopher was a good kid. Many of my patients have extreme problems, but not him. He had struggled with sleep for much of his young life, but I was able to help him get those sleep habits under control through the power of hypnosis. A monthly session kept him in tip-top shape. Until he met me, Christopher was up all night getting only four or five hours of sleep. Now he went to bed late in the evening, got a full night's rest, and his entire life was improving as a result. His grades went up, he started doing extracurricular activities, and he even had a girlfriend now. When he didn't show up for his regular appointment, I assumed that I would arrive in my office the next morning to a voicemail from his mother begging to know when the next open slot was. But when I arrived at my office on Monday morning, no such message was found. I thought it odd, but was sure to check by the end of the day that Christopher's mother would check in with me. Mondays were always slow for me. The only patient I had before lunch was Jane, a shy woman who I used hypnosis to help her get out of her shell. After a successful session with her, I found myself without much to do, and turned on the television set that I kept in my office. I'm the kind of person who loves the 24 hours news cycle. Hearing about the murders, the politics, the disasters, and the catastrophes always made me feel like I was a part of what was happening in the world. What I loved most of all, however, was the local news. It was a lot softer with more fluff pieces, but it really let me know what was going on in our community while I was holed up in my office all day. By this hour, the local news was generally over. It was already 10 a.m. and everyone in the area would be at their jobs right now, but today there was a special breaking news segment. I felt a knock grow in my stomach as I watched our normally cheery female news anchor deliver some devastating news. School shootings always seem like the kind of thing you will only ever hear about on television, but it's some sort of tragedy that never happened in your neck of the woods. Today, however, there was one just a few blocks away from my office. I sat in silence as she went over what few gruesome details there was, the nervous feeling in my stomach worsening. The shooting took place at Ingleton High, the same school that Christopher attended. I couldn't help but imagine the worst. The death count was rather high, in the 20s, but with any luck, Christopher would not be among them. I wanted to believe he was okay, he was such a good kid. Regardless of what he witnessed or experienced, however, it surely would change our sessions. Perhaps future appointments would be spent working on his trauma as opposed to just helping him sleep. I crossed my fingers as I continued to watch, praying that he was as far away from the violence as possible. Then I saw his photo. Christopher's photo. For a second, I did a double take. Were they showing us the victims, the dead, but... No, they never did that. Not this soon. This was what they did every other night. This was a photo of the shooter. For a few minutes, I just sat there with my mouth agape. My phone rang, but I couldn't will myself to answer it. I could hardly bring myself to breathe. I just sat there, listening to the eyewitness reports that were coming in. 
imagining Christopher acting them out. He was a good kid. He was the best patient I had. He was just one of the better teenagers in this world. I refused to believe it. It was actually him who did this. But then they arrested him. He was alive, uninjured, but he looked so different. His eyes were soulless, and how could they not be? What he did was something no good person could ever even imagine, but somehow he did do those things. Christopher had confided in me his silly nightmares about accidentally showing up to class naked. This was a teenager who used to get virtually no sleep because he was up all night watching internet cartoons. He was just a boy who was happy to take a girl to the carnival last month. What could have compelled him to do this? When they locked him in the back of the police car, I made a mad dash for my filing cabinet. I didn't even bother bringing his paperwork. Trying to find anything that I may have missed during our many long discussions before hypnosis. But everything I read only confirmed what I always believed. That Christopher was a good kid with a good heart. But if that were true, then this wouldn't be happening. I'm getting reports now of another shooting happening just down the street at Angleton Elementary. I froze in place afraid to turn and look at the television. Christopher planned this with a friend? I couldn't imagine Christopher opening fire on his own classmates, but planning to go for innocent children as well? His younger brother went to that school, a brother who he adored and worked hard to be a positive role model for. I couldn't dare look at the screen until I heard her name. Jane's photo appeared almost instantly. Jane, who I had seen just less than an hour ago, she was a shy woman, never one to speak loudly. I had been using hypnosis to help her be more proactive in her life and to do things she always felt too anxious to do. She had to have gone straight to the school for my office. She had to already have had the gun in her car. There was no way someone like her could do this, but there was her photo. This, of course, shocking the neighborhood just hours after another gunman opened fire on Bear Creek Elementary. A dark chill slid through my stomach. The news anchor said this. My vision began to go dark. I fell over as soon as I stood up, trying to reach for my remote, desperate to change the channel, desperate to see anything that wasn't this. But all I found was more of the same. I turned the channel away from our local news station to a major news network that only covered the biggest of the big events in our country. We were one of them. It wasn't just our tiny little neighborhood. Every single district, every single school, they were all under attack. Some of them were shot up by students, but most of them were invaded by adults. Some even had multiple shooters, and every name I heard was a familiar. There was Lisa, a woman I had been seeing for years, dealing with grief over the death of her son. She had decided today was the day to take everyone else's children away from them. Then there was Carlos, a father of three who needed hypnotism to overcome his alcohol abuse. He had killed two of his own children along with everyone else he could hit. Marcus, Anthony, Maria, Jeremy, all patients of mine. Some I hadn't even seen in years, who decided to open fire on their local schools. Each assailant had a different motive, a different gun, a different story. Some attacked the same school but invaded at different times. Some left notes behind. Some shouted their motives as the cops opened fire. Some confessed after the police had them in custody. While it was still early, there didn't seem to be any sign of what all these attackers had in common. There was no indication of what made them all decide to do this today. With each new name, I returned to my file cabinet, grabbing another file, trying to find something that all these patients had in common. I spent hours just watching the news and returning to the cabinet to find another patient file. Then I heard another update. There had been so much focus on our mass shootings that no coverage had been given to another school shooting across the country. 
a small middle school in rural Midwest. It was so far away that they didn't believe it could be in any way related to what was happening in my corner of the country. The deviation from the pattern made me breathe a sigh of relief until I saw the photo of the killer. The shooter wasn't one of my patients, no, but it was a name that I remembered well, the name of the first person I had ever hypnotized. I was just a student, and he was just a volunteer, years and years before I would even open up my own practice, far away from where I live now in the small college town where I had studied. He had no way of knowing anyone else in this town. It would be impossible for him to be involved with my patients, yet somehow he was. And that wasn't the end of it. More and more reports began to come in about other mass shootings all over the country. I didn't have to stare at the screen to know who the shooters were going to be. Every new face that appeared was someone I'd hypnotized. By now, the sick feeling in my stomach had gone away. All I felt now was the urge to laugh. Some of them were students at my college that I had practiced on who moved far, far away after graduation. Some were previous clients of mine I hadn't seen in years who now lived elsewhere in the country. Some of them were clients I had seen just last week who decided that they needed to travel just a little bit further to find the right school for them to attack. I laughed hysterically as I heard the police pounding on my office door, demanding to be let in. I had found the answer the police were looking for. I now knew with absolute certainty what every one of these shooters had in common. I didn't have to look through my files or dig through their histories. I now knew that when you hypnotize someone, you don't just change that small part of them. You reprioritize things in their brain. And sometimes, you rearrange things that you never expected. The only thing that each and every one of my patients had in common was that they were all hypnotized by me.